You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to M Pavilion, uh, designed by Australian architect Glenn Merkitt, AO. My name is uh, Professor Donald Bates. I'm the Chair of Architectural Design at the Melbourne School of Design, University of Melbourne. I'd like to acknowledge the uh, Yulikit Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yulikit Willem are part of the Burrung, one of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, to their ancestors, and to their elders, past, present, and those into the future. The genesis of this event uh, and associating it associating it with the M Pavilion was that we had invited uh, Professor Philippe Bloch from the ETH in Zurich to come as a Tresseter Fellow. Um, Tresseter Fellow is a uh, fellowship that we have and we have a lecture tomorrow evening with Professor Bloch. But it also coincides as part of Melbourne Design Week and as part of Melbourne Design Week at the same time, we also have an exhibition up at the University of Melbourne in the Melbourne School of Design, the Dulux Gallery, which is called Future Prototyping, which um, Dr. Paul Lowe has uh, curated along with uh, David Leggett and uh, Mon Q, who's not here. So the idea was to try to have a little bit of a conversation. This is not a formal set of presentations. Um, given the venue where it's quite difficult to do multimedia uh, audiovisual work, we've gone old school and printed out images and reference images of projects. Uh, not necessarily that anybody's going to speak to them directly, but just to give you some differences of the kind of work that uh, the different panelists have been involved in. We are missing one panelist who was to be here, uh, Professor Alyssa Andrusek from RMIT. She wasn't, she had a headache, a uh, migraine, and she was a bit worried about being out in public and the cold air and everything. Nothing to do with this other thing that's going around, but just, uh, you know, she had a headache, let's say. This is a fairly informal uh, event. Uh, what I'm asking each of the panelists to do is to just give us a really quick five-minute um, conversation or, or introduction about their work, not the broad level of the work, but actually I would like each of the, the four panelists to speak about the most current pressing work that they're dealing with. Uh, just to understand what are the issues that they're, they're working on at the moment. Then I've got a series of questions that I want to come back and hopefully engage the panel in a series of conversations and discussions. And then obviously we'll open it up. This is, uh, again, very informal. There's probably been some drop-off of people that we expected to be here, but there's a nice group that's here. But we're also recording this for future dissemination. So uh, given the uncertain uncertainties that we deal with right now, uh, this is also as much about how this will be uh, received into the future as it is today. Okay. So let me just introduce the panel quickly, and I'll start in the sort of uh, sequence that... Uh, uh, I'll ask each one to, to respond. So I'll begin by introducing uh, Professor Philippe Bloch. Uh, Philippe is here. 
Philippe is from the ETH. He's one of the directors of the Block Research Group at ETH. Uh, his background is in architecture, but it's also architecture and architectural engineering. Uh, studies at MIT, PhD through MIT, coming to Zurich and taking over uh, as this professorship uh, with the Block Research Group. Um, and is somebody whose work is doing some quite amazing things and the group itself. Um, and then after that, I'll ask uh, Dr. Paul Lowe to speak. Paul is a uh, senior lecturer at uh, the Melbourne School of Design as part of the University of Melbourne and the Faculty of Architecture, Building and Planning. Uh, he received his PhD um, last year from RMIT University. Uh, and he's also one of the curators and directors of the exhibition that's currently on at the Melbourne School of Design, Dulux Gallery, uh, Future Prototyping. And then I'll ask uh, Professor Jane Burry, who's the head of the newly uh, uh, generated uh, architecture program at Swinburne University, as well as a long-term researcher and uh, um, uh, architect working in the field of uh, different material fabrication, different material productions, and, and so forth. And again, both within her work at Swinburne, but also she and uh, members of her various research uh, groups also have uh, projects that are exhibited in the exhibition Future Prototyping. And then finally, but not least, is uh, a, a enterprise professor, uh, Brendan McNiven. Brendan is uh, enterprise professor at the University of Melbourne. He comes to us after a very long period of working at Arup, uh uh, and Associates, or Arab, I should, should say. Uh, he's an engineer by training, but we're now uh, trying to, um, you know, put the virus of architecture into him. And he's also one of the people leading our architectural engineering degree, along with Dominic Holzer. So within that range, we have a, a range of different backgrounds, a number of overlaps uh, that we have. And so I'll begin by asking Philippe just to speak for maybe four or five minutes, just to the most recent uh, work that you're doing, but also maybe foretelling a bit of the direction that you're most interested in with the Block Research Group. Uh, thanks. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming uh, in these interesting times. Um, the, the most pressing thing or the latest thing that we're doing is trying to have impact and not research for the sake of um, being known, um, influencing uh, students and so on, but really to uh, have knowledge and technology transfer. And um, this attitude or this uh, urgency comes from the reality of these um, of, of the extreme climatic uh, um, uh, pressures that our industry is causing. Um, so we want to um, full on and very clearly kind of um, address uh, the issue of pollution, um, the issue of uh, irresponsible use of natural virgin resources and then waste production. Um, to make it even more challenging, because in the next 30, 40 years, for the 2.1 billion more people that will be on this planet, we need to double our building stock. That is a lot of floor, floor areas that need to be built. 
and the way we built currently. Um, this is polluting more than all transport, uh, transport in the world, so more than airplanes, the very bad ships that people don't talk about enough, and, and, and cars and so on and so on. So this is something that we need to take absolutely serious. And um, our group is uh, a co combination of uh, uh, computational architects and engineers. So we are structural designers. And as a structural designer, we can actually have quite a lot of um, impact uh, in this problematic because we can significantly reduce, for example, the structural volume that is needed. We can uh, introduce less polluting materials by actually getting the geometry of the structures right. And um, less polluting typically goes hand in hand with less uh, high strength materials. And so this is, there is a lot of potential to do much, much better. And so um, that is what we're going towards. And, and we're also trying to commercialize these things because uh, our industry has uh, a real bottleneck in the sense that there is not a lot of margin to, to take all these risks. Someone needs to take the risk and we are trying to actually bring our innovations into, into practice. Um, so yeah, we introduce strength through geometry. We also introduce um, a, a term that we call material effectiveness rather than material efficiency. Uh, particularly the German engineers, uh, Fraiotto and so on, were right in many, many things, but perhaps not in their fascination on, on always going lighter and lighter. And so we try to clarify that it's not necessarily about lighter, but about understanding the materials in what they want to do. And if you do that, then you can have gigantic, gigantic offsets and improvements. And so it's exciting. So we are, I think we're very close to having impact and to translate some of these core ideas that actually are all common sense principles that used to be uh, uh, there in the past, and they have somehow been forgotten. Uh, so we need to do better. So that's what we're doing. Okay. Thank you, Philip. Uh, Paul? Yep. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for coming. It's cold. But we'll warm up soon. It's okay. We warm up. Um, all right. So um, just a little bit about our research. So I'm an architect, um, but also a lecturer, so I'm kind of bridging the two. Um, I think maybe this kind of across three areas. The first area is really in practice. Um, the latest thing that we're working on is we're currently building this um, never-ending finishing house, where I insist that every package ought to be a paper, which is ridiculous. Um, so part of the ideas of um, the house as kind of a prototype is really to explore these notions of incremental constructions. Um, so we, David and I have um, quite a unique practice where instead of um, drawing board, we, when we first landed in Australia, we bought ourselves a CNC machine and a robot and we trying to design through making as opposed to design through drawings, um, which is perhaps a slightly kind of augmented kind of different form of practice um, compared to traditional practice. Um, so this house prototype that we're working on, I think some of the images here, um, you can see a lot of the work in there are predominantly kind of created through kind of incremental forming. The other aspect of work that we are kind of focusing on, and this is part, um, David is also involved in it. I know as a practice, we seek a lot of money into, into research, which is not a good idea. Um, we've been working on this machine called parametric adjustable mode. Um, which is basically a mode that look at um, interesting enough, kind of um, Philips' kind of paper has been referenced heavily into that 
research, um, we're looking at how we can generate curved concrete panel without eliminating mold. Um, so we designed a single mold, which are essentially automated um, and actuated to produce different curvatures. Um, it's now a patent technology, which um, is in the process of commercializations. Um, so we're kind of looking at the potentials of it. So there's a couple of new research trajectories that come out from that. Um, we just finished a series of one-to-one um, -one scale prototypes. The next step is really to develop it um, with a bit of AI technology with Alberto Ponale and his um, PhD students um, into a more, the next step, which is a pavilion um, scale project. Um, and I guess the last bit of research is really what we do in, in teaching. Again, both David and I are involved in teaching at the Melbourne School of Design. Um, the teachings aspect of it is really fueling our, our, re, our kind of practice research. So in other words, going full circle. Um, we always look at one single brief, um, how to make machines to make architecture. Very simple brief. And um, every year we tend to have one or two interesting, curious objects that comes out. Um, which we hopefully can kind of um, embed ideas for the future. All right. Okay, thank you, Paul. Uh, Jane? Thanks, Donald. Um, so three things, really. Just moving into an established design school and setting up a new, a, yet another new architecture program in Melbourne is kind of the question of what are the really essential ingredients for a 21st century architecture program. And in a time of, believe it or not, quite scarce resource in universities, um, a real priority has been establishing um, a very large democratized fabrication facility. So uh, Paul is kind of the expert on this, sort of thinking through making. Um, it's not just about producing things or representation, but very much about this much more intimate uh, relationship that designers need to develop with their materials and with their making. Um, and a lot of that has to sort of engage with our aspiration towards a seamless digital production process. Um, the second thing, I'll just talk a bit about uh, research that we've been engaged in for some time and still are, uh, which is looking at how the fabrication possibilities give us this other opportunity, which is to access and afford to make things that are really quite fine-grained in terms of combining geometry and materiality um, in a way that we can make surfaces, for instance, that are much more um, responsive to other phenomena. And in the printout, some of those projects are looking at sound, for instance. So. Uh, looking at acoustics in open work areas and how through uh, digital simulation but also through physical iteration we can not only kind of control where sound goes but we can start to really play and tune the qualities um, of those acoustic spaces for the people using them for the purposes that they're using them for and, and very similar approaches always in a team, always with other disciplines um, working with air movement and temperature around surfaces and looking at really passive ways that we can almost displace mechanical air conditioning, but at least uh, look at the way we control the microclimate um, in ways that do less damage 
and, um, and are actually much more keyed into human well-being and the way that we feel around buildings. And sort of finally, I guess, reiterate uh, Philippe's point that, yes, those, that New York that we have to build every year, as Bill Gates said, for the next 40 years. Every month. Every month, sorry. What did I say? Yeah, sorry, every month, I meant, I meant every month, um, is, um, is absolutely terrifying and sort of spells out self-annihilation if we were to continue to construct in the ways that we are doing right now. So there is just incredible urgency around that, and um, Philippe is kind of the expert to have here on um, minimising material use, looking at structural optimization. but there are some other ways we're looking at doing that, and part of that is looking at how, for instance, architects and industrial designers and manufacturers can work together much more closely to look at a kind of level of productivity and precision in construction that we see in manufacturing, but which up to now we haven't seen in construction. So I'll probably leave it there. I think that was my five. Okay, thank you very much, Jane. Finally, Brendan McNiven. Thanks, Don. Um, Yes, as, as Don said, I look after architectural engineering up at Melbourne Uni. Um, what Don didn't mention is that I, uh, the other half of my time is spent doing my PhD, which is also in architectural engineering, and it's looking at the different ways that architects and engineers think. Um, and you know, Jane and uh, Philippe have touched on that. It's it's very important to get that, you know, human humanitarian side with it with the technical side working together and and. Yeah, having worked for 30 years with architects as an engineer, um, the thinking is very different. Um, and there's a, a couple of projects in the, the handout there. Um, appropriately, they're M Pavilion projects, and uh, I put them in there because they sort of uh, demonstrate the differences in, in approaches that come with, uh, with fabrication and looking how we actually build. So I was lucky enough to be involved in the design of two of the M Pavilions, 2016 with Amanda Levitt, which is uh, the, the carbon fibre poles and carbon fibre pedals for lily pad type structure. Um, it's now sitting down in Collins Street down in Docklands. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but it was, it was a beautiful structure. But, but the thing, or piece of architecture, the, the thing about that pavilion is that Amanda's original sketch is pretty much what got built at the end of the day. So the prototyping and design was all about the, the end product, um, whereas the the second project in there is the 2017 M Pavilion, and that was with uh, B. Joy Jane and Studio Mumbai. So that was a very large bamboo structure. And uh, that was a polar opposite in terms of the process around how it was designed and, and fabricated. So uh, Studio Mumbai, um, you know, for them, the prototyping is the architecture. So they start off with matchstick models, and they end up with full-size bamboo models built um, in what's become a bit of a cottage industry around uh, B-Joy's studio in Mumbai. Um, and they basically work with local, art local artisans to um, develop this, this, uh, this uh, well, whatever the piece of architecture is going to be, in this case, a pavilion. So very much uh, designing through, through making. So um, they're both very successful M pavilions, um, but they both came from a very different place. And it's interesting to look at, you know, the role prototyping played in that. One, one was all about the end product, the other one was all about the process on the way through. Um, yeah, one was about new uh, materials, carbon fibre, um, and carbon fibre in ways it hadn't been used and joined before. The other was about very old materials, so 
bamboo and stone and other things. Um, but but the, the common thing for both of them, once you take away uh, that side of it, is that they both relied on that uh, local craft craftsmanship or craft personship. So in the case of Amanda, it was actually a firm called Moldcam or Shape, Shapeshift, I think they're called now, uh, out of Brisbane. And they're, they're boat builders and they had incredible knowledge on you know, how to do you know, uh, carbon fibre through the, the knowledge on boat building. And, and they were really key to the whole project. And in, in terms of B-Joy's one, it was uh, all of the people around his practice in, in Mumbai um, who actually informed. So how you actually join bamboo, um, you know, how you you do the stone and, and all of the other things. So, and, and that that's that's a potential, well, I think it's a big issue is that separation of um, technology uh, with the actual methods. So that the, um, you know, it, it, technology has so much to offer us, but we can't forget the, uh, you know, the local artisans and, and craftsmanship uh, that, that we have, you know, the tradition, there's a whole lot of knowledge in there. And um, I can't remember, you know, someone said about rediscovering, uh, I think, old ways of doing things, and that's exactly um, you know, what, what we need to hang on to. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Brendan. Um, there's a couple of, there, I mean, uh, within these introductions, there are at least three major uh, uh, themes that I have down in my notes that I want to come back to. Uh, one of those has to do with the question between architecture, architectural engineering, and engineering. And as Brendan was just speaking about, for me, there's this question about uh, notions of sequentiality of production. Uh, from a drawing to a shop drawing to a fabrication drawing to construction or to fabrication to actual implementation. So, but I want to start off. This is a, a an issue that for me uh, uh, is certainly embedded in the four discussions that we've already started here, and it relates to this question of scale. Um, when I think about all of the work that the four of you are involved in, it's a question of to what degree is is your interest in, you know, in, in architecture we draw two scales. We draw at one to 100, one to 50, one to 500, one to, to five. And then we hand it over and then somebody does it at one to one. But most of the work you're doing and uh, a lot of the, the projects that you've been involved in deal in looking at fabrication and prototyping at the scale of, one-to-one -one or close enough or to some degrees. So I'm, I'm interested, I'm going to address this first to Philippe, you know, the, the block research group, the facilities you have in Zurich at ETH allow you to operate at a scale that is no longer either a simulation or a referencing to future production. It's a certain direct production relationship in itself. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that. Um, I, I, I think the question of scale is, is essential because there is many things that seem to make sense and seem to have potential, but when you scale them to a size that matters or that is realistic or relevant for construction, uh, you, you are confronted with all kinds of things that, that, that really don't scale li uh, linearly at all. And I know that this may be an obvious thing, but it is also an unfortunate reality that I observe in most research places that if you don't have the opportunity, the infrastructure, the, 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 
the, the support both of uh, our, our university directly, but also the industry actually in Switzerland that actually put significant funding towards, act, towards actually making um, a transfer possible. If you don't have these opportunities, then it's very hard to really address the real challenges and to really get there. And, and for me, that is highly, highly problematic because there is so many extremely smart people that should actually be able to transfer key ideas because like, like Jane said earlier, um, we, are, we are approaching it in one way. We are trying to address the challenges that I said earlier in one way, for example, with our super lightweight un unreinforced floor system that has practically no more embodied uh, uh, carbon uh, involved. Um, but we need many, many solutions. And, and it's not going to come from industry. And uh, the gap is just too big, and we need a full disruption. And on top of that, also addressed by Jane, we need to think how this interfaces with the building site. So that I find also, OK, so that is one thing. So scale is important. I also want to directly react to something else that you said about architecture, architectural engineering, and engineering. I think that is, that is a discussion that have been going on for almost as long as we are building in these outdated, really bad ways, so almost a century. And uh, in fact, I recommend you to look at, for example, um, books on graphic statics, statics from, from the mid-1800s. And when you would not know that these introductions come from those books, it might as well be an introduction of any of our papers right now. So they're talking about the same challenges, the same issues, and so on. Um, I think that is a bit of an outdated discussion because it's more important to actually, again, relating and fully agreeing with what Jane said, is actually to bridge between the design team. Let's just agree that the design team is no longer the architect, so, right? That is that is really bad way forward. And this sequential process that you talk about is also something that I hope we can all agree that that is really not what we need to do. So design team is the architects, the architectural engineers, the engineers, all of them together. But now we need to connect this to what happens on site. We need to build more efficiently, faster. We need to take, uh, indeed, improved precision. Because there are so many kind of things that evolved, like um, safety factors also have to do with kind of how things are being done on site or, or not, and so on and so on. So I think we need to update this discussion beyond always the traditional architect versus engineer. The key thing is actually how to bring these innovations on site. And that is where we, and that is where scale matters. Because that is really where you see that these concepts that make sense, if they're not in line or kind of compatible with something that could happen on site, then this is never going to happen. And that is, that is where really prototyping at scale is so important, I think. I mean, part of, part of my reason for uh, highlighting that question of architecture, architectural engineer, and engineering is we had a conversation walking around Melbourne earlier today, and you were saying that in terms of the new uh, researchers, the PhD students you bring in, that you are actually moving more towards having more quote-unquote engineer background students because the kind of work you were wanting to do needed people who understood those fundamental principles. And the conversations that Brendan and I have constantly is on the one hand, we're trying to do projects that uh, work between the Faculty of Architecture and the Faculty of Engineering. 
And we still struggle for the engineers to think open-endedly, and we very much struggle for architects to think with precision and with uh, fundamental principles, as opposed to just, it looks good, so let's go with it. So I guess one of those, so maybe I'll put this to Brendan, is you're kind of got a foot in both corners right at the moment. And uh, I mean, I, I completely agree with what Philippe is proposing, but what's the method for breaking that kind of nexus of it's one or the other, or you just have, you have a kind of Janus head condition of both working together and hope something good comes out? It's it's a really good question, and it's it's exactly why I'm doing my my PhD um, because it's it is a no-brainer, and, and it's it's actually not hard, and it gets done very well all around the world. It's just that it gets done so sporadically, and 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 I hate to say, um, I, I think Melbourne is not good at it in particular. I think the further that you get away from Europe and London in particular, the uh, the more we struggle with with what I call integrated design. So you know, we've got some studios running at the university at the moment, which is actually trying to get architectural engineering and sorry, architectural students and engineering students working together, and uh, and studying how that that process happens. And and that's a lot about my PhD. It's trying to actually understand how the thinking is actually different. Um, I I disagree with you, Philippe, on the just just in the fact that uh, I don't think we can afford to leave that. Um, I agree with you in that I don't think it should be a problem, and, and for a lot of people it isn't, but um, sadly for the majority uh, it, it still is. Um, I actually, I also agree. The reality is that there is none of this integration, right? I mean, only these, these, these special kind of uh, practices. But what I, tr what I wanted to say is that we need to at least extend it. And, and that's, that's at, from the introductions, I think that everyone here or this audience seems to agree that that is something that we need to work towards, this, this integration. But um, I would argue that, that, that yes, we know this, but that is really, really, really not enough to then make things happen. So that's, that's kind of... And, and, and I, I agree on that front, I think. And, and one of the keys, like you say, is, is the making or the construction. And as much as I and I imagine most of the other people in design industry hate design and construct. The one thing design and construct does is it brings everything together at the back end of the project. So if you get a good design and construct contractor on board, I think it can actually be a positive thing for, for some of those reasons. Um, just quickly in terms of getting architecture and engineering to work better together, you know, I think just getting people to talk to each other is 50% of the issue. If you then get people to actually understand what the other discipline is doing and value what the other discipline is doing, I think you're up at the 80% level. And, and the, the remaining 20% is just whether you do it really well or you do it not so well. Jane, it's Swinburne. Same question? Uh, no, oh, no, not, ah, not quite the same question. But I mean, you're, you're starting a new program. Yeah. There are already four schools of architecture in Melbourne or in the vicinity of Melbourne. You have an opportunity to do something completely different, uh, to offer something that nobody else is offering. Um, what is your sort of uh, vision for the program at Swinburne, and how does that differ radically or, or marginally or uh, incrementally from other programs that exist in Melbourne or even in Australia? So I think that interdisciplinary mix is actually quite 
key here. So, I mean, I have the advantage that we're operating within a very long established school of design. And the concept here was to very much bring the architectural program into, uh, into that um, pond, as it were. So we've started architecture, architectural engineering, um, urban design more or less simultaneously in a place that was already, um, you know, had a long history of communication and industrial product uh, and product design engineering. Um, but I think also, it was also kind of quite a good foundation in the sense that it's a very modular education structure. There's a lot of sharing of um, pedagogy across disciplines inherently. So every course shares units, every unit shares courses. Um, so we, we had some quite easy foundations to build on in that. But certainly that was a priority. Um, was really to get away from that sort of sense of any strong hierarchy um, or um, or any barriers to possibilities of working across those disciplines. Um, so the architectural engineering actually is a major um, in the engineering degree, but a lot of the teaching is in the architectural studios. So um, also not my idea, but Marcus White's idea is the pie-shaped person. We talk very often about the T-shaped person with the, the sort of general grasp um, and then the very deep taproot into a specialization. We wondered about two taproots. So that's also kind of been applied in the urban situation that we will have people who are doing a joint masters in architecture and urban design. Um, so we get away from the, plan the planning of planning and the, the three-dimensional kind of nature of architecture and we have people who potentially could accredit in both those disciplines. Paul, you, um, both within your practice with, with David, but also within your research work with your PhD, and then also as an academic at the University of Melbourne, you deal with the undergraduates as well as the graduates. You deal with research, but also very fundamental introductions uh, to architectural principles and design principles. Yep. What, how does that relate to the sort of specificity of learning through making as opposed to learning through uh, pedagogical uh, uh, overlays that you might do for a you know, first, second year student? <laughs> wow, that's, um, that's quite difficult. Um, Okay. Um, look, I, th I think I, actually, can I just touch on a little bit on the on the previous sure, sure. Um, conversation as well? Because I think one person that we one discipline that we forgot are the builders to integrate into the architecture engineering disciplines. Because I think um, um, one thing that we found when we were doing our practice is that increasingly, the more you want to build weird stuff, stuff that doesn't conform to your standard regulations, you're going to have to get the builders to buy in, or the architects become the builders. And I would love to have a, see a program where architects become the builders deep into it, not just doing the everyday mundane kind of management of building con contract, but actually knowing how to build, but also taking the risks, understanding the risks involved in the building process. I think architecture as a discipline are more and more removed from that. And I think that goes back to some of um, to the educational models, right? I think um, 
making as a pedagogy, and I, I think I wrote about that. Just to, to clarify, I did my PhD with Jane, so, so <laughs> there's kind of a, a, a lineage here. But, um, and, um, and I think we wrote, um, I wrote a paper about a few years ago on, on making as pedagogy, and we have been always been looking at how you make in order to inform a teaching method as a way of building unique learning experience for the students. In other words, they may not all get the same sort of education, but they do get varied ex um, education, depends on how they engage with materials. And it has been kind of in practice, you know, it's not kind of anything new in education. It's always been saying that, well, you can make, even with computers, with programming language, you can build everything from the start and somehow treat it as a materials, you know, as a way of making, as a way of constructing stuff. And that process allows students to learn, and I think, we're trying to do that with the Bachelor of Design to a certain degree in, in our um, undergraduate degrees. Um, and second year, we're trying to get them to understand um, some digital fabrication techniques. But I have to say, I mean, just to be super critical about what we teach as well, you know, they are just fundamental techniques. They're just a the bread and butter. I don't think at the undergraduate level, we are kind of surpassing a level where you can actually go beyond the techniques. When David and I run studios at master's level, that's when we can start to play with the techniques and actually do something else. In other words, the focus is not on, let's say, how to use a machine anymore, but really on how you can actually produce design from that. And I think that's really important um, if you want to do design through making, because at the end of the day, the, the design needs to come on top as opposed to the process or the technique become also all-consuming because in practice, you know, the process are always always consuming anyway and you somehow invent your way through it if you're trying to do something interesting. So, um, so the project that we were doing with the house, for example, that's where we do a lot of blind inventions as we go along. And a lot of the time it's actually working with the builders and actually go, can we build this? And if we can't build it, how do we do it? And David and I will actually prototype it one to one scale in order to build it. Mm. Well, let me let me let me extend that because this was one of the uh, sort of main themes I wanted to to address, which I've I've written down as a kind of uh, sequentiality of production. So we have a very long history, and I'm talking about this as an architect because that's what I am. Um, you know, where we do concept design, schematic design, design development working drawings, we hand those over. We might get uh, shop drawings done by somebody else. We might get certain fabrication details done by somebody else. Then we get a builder who then looks at that stuff and then builds it the way they understand it and so on and so forth. So there's this kind of sequentiality to it. Now, one of the uh, promises, the disruptive promises of some of the new uh, fabrication processes that you jump directly from the digital model to the thing that's on site and built. So all of those intermediate stages of transfer from one discipline to another, from one kind of drawing methodology to a different kind, they somehow get eradicated in this magic one-to-one -one transference and stuff. So I guess one of the questions for the four of you is, is that true? Are we, what's holding us up from doing it if it's a great way to do it? I mean, you know, I, I remember reading uh, about the, the uh, Guggenheim Bilbao that Gary's team could take the model, 
send the CATIA drawings to the fabricator and each beam and each piece would have a number on it and it was a kind of Lego set to be built by the, the team. And so this is 20 years ago, 25 years ago. But if we went around Melbourne today, what project is even doing that? And why are we not doing more than that? Philippe. Um, so yes, that is absolutely possible. I think, not I think, I know from any interaction with people that are trying to push innovation in, in, in the industry, is that this is also the only way. This is necessary to make that connection. That's exactly what I was trying to argue earlier. That's the same as what Paul is saying, that it needs to, the understanding, the knowledge, it's the same also with the local crafts. All of this knowledge needs to be embedded in the team. And so what is holding it back? Everything. I mean, um, an outdated, an, an education system that is actually not like Jane is now trying to outline what is the architect for the 21st century? No, it's educating the 19th century kind of architect, uh, an engineer. So that's one thing. Um, I don't know how it is here, but um, building codes um, and particularly actually also um, how uh, the Architects Association is kind of um, dividing the tasks so that everyone can uh, build in their get a part of the remuneration. So that is also regulated uh, and, and tailored for this sequential kind of process. There is liability challenges. There is, I mean, so everything is in the way. Another thing that is in the way is um, because it is indeed disruptive with respect to almost everything, is that um, I, I, I see not only in research but also in practice that everyone is reinventing the wheel con continuously. So everyone is keeping their in-house knowledge is not, so we also have a culture where there's not enough kind of learning from each other and together actually getting our entire industry to another level. And so that is why, for example, if you were to come to my lecture tomorrow, uh, I will plentifully demonstrate this and everything that I will show is available in our open source computational framework that we have developed exactly for that purpose. To at least not at ETH, at least not in my group, at least not in our core kind of collaborators at MIT, Ecole des Ponts in Stuttgart and so on. None of us will ever have to reinvent or set up your software kind of connections and plugins and so on. And waste essential time to innovate and so on. So, so I see that also as a reason. It's just this attitude of uh, trying to keep an edge and so on, and we really need to do better altogether. And I want to make it even worse, all this urgency that I, uh, that I talk about. I think the biggest danger is that Jane asked, like, why is architecture not like um, uh, the automation that we see in other industries? if we don't get our act together, so if we don't indeed acknowledge that architects and engineers should at least understand each other, if we don't start to, to take these kind of uh, computational strategies that allow to bridge all of these different stages and, and have an integrated design team, then someone else will do it. And you see this already happening with this Silicon Valley kind of high uh, uh, in billions backed kind of companies that are not interested in the outdated models of the architects and the engineers because they don't need them. And I think that is the biggest dangers that all our fields are, 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 are kind of facing right now 
if we don't respond and we don't keep um, engineering experience, good design, so not just a technocratic, perfectly fully vertically integrated Catera style kind of fast delivery of mediocre solutions all over the world, no contextuality and so on. If we don't get our act together, then that is what's going to happen because 90%, 99% probably of the world is not interested in, in the architectural explanation, is interested in fast, cheap, cheap, uh, cheap uh, dignified, um, safe housing. Right, for example, and high, so, co high competency, but what's high that? high competency, but no innovation or transformation. Well, they will just shortcut the entire kind of industry, and if we don't indeed think how we need to educate the future architects, engineers, builders, and so on, then we will be shortcutted, and I'm I, for a large amount because these things are happening, and why would they not? I mean. And, and they won't want the whole city. They won't want the complicated bits or the health services. They'll want the kind of the, the repetitive, um, low-hanging fruit parts like the housing. So we've still got to put the city together somehow. So that is quite a dangerous scenario. I, I think there's another barrier, which is we, we still aren't really able to grapple very well with our data management. And there was a really nice article by Oliver Wainwright in The Guardian earlier in the year, which was sort of looking at the end of demolition as one green solution um, and that the the solution um, in this particular scenario was really that if everything we put into buildings was inventoried so your drywall and your uh, electric sockets and your light fittings and um, your bricks were actually existing in the internet of things out then then they retain their value and they become tradable so you could actually look at a future in which the volume of new material in a new building might only be 10 or 20%, and you could actually reuse a great deal of the building material. That's kind of without even looking at the scenario of reuse of buildings, which is obviously something we have to kind of revisit in a big way. But, but you know, that, that again would be a quite a complex... Well, that's something that could be outsourced in terms of data handling. But the data handling inside our industries and the sharing of data is still a really fundamental barrier um, to being able to do things in any kind of streamlined or effective way. Brendan, what, in, in terms of this question, because, again, I'm making big suppositions here, but as an engineer, you would have been somewhere in the middle of this lineage of sequential production and having to deal with lots of decisions that have already been made at the point at which actually it probably would have been much better if you were at the beginning of some of those decisions. So how, how, how does one disrupt this sequentiality? And what, what is the barrier for that disruption, as Philippe was talking about? There's so many things going through my mind listening to the, the different bits of, uh, bits of discussion. Um, yeah, it, it saddens me that uh, you know we were doing things uh, 15 years ago now, um, you know, procuring jobs on three-dimensional models and all of that sort of thing, and you know going into digital fabrication through um, you know cutting of tube sections and that sort of thing that we don't even do now. So we, we keep needing to re relearn this. This lesson um, is one is one observation. Um, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think it will be coming. Uh, I think that we've had some 
issues around software in the industry where um, you know it, uh, there's a lot of consolidation of software uh, you know with, with Revit just becoming so popular but actually being behind in terms of technology with a lot of other software but I think that's sort of sorting itself out um, the, the other observation I wanted to make is uh, I agree with you Philippe in, in terms of getting everything into the room and consolidating consolidating all of the knowledge in one place but that's it's a very idealistic idea and I think uh, I've always found that incredibly difficult in a practical sense and, and there's a story um, around the bird's nest which was an Arab project the um, national stadium in in Beijing and uh, I went and my, my I used to love the the water cube and, and then when I saw them side by side the bird's nest is so perfectly done yeah, it could be a, a scale model that's three inches long or it could be something that's 300 metres long. It's just so beautiful as, as a structure. And I started to look into the drawings and when you look at the way that they curve that steel, it's actually double curved steel, which I've always thought was just a total no-no. You, you, you can't do it. You talk to any fabricator, they'll just you know, laugh you out of town. And then I went through all of the engineers and you know, from the, the principals in Arab right the way down to the people who actually do the work, and I just lost the trail where it actually left Arab and went to the fabricators in China. And so the fabricators in China um, were asked an incredibly impossible question, uh, you know, create two, two uh, steelwork curved in two directions, and they actually did it. And, and I still didn't get an answer on how they actually did it. So I think actually having a sequence and, and actually asking difficult questions of people actually really promotes innovation sometimes and actually lets you achieve things that you might not otherwise achieve if, if you just work off the, the knowledge that's in your immediate immediate sphere. And, and I think that's one of the things architects are very good at actually is, is asking those difficult questions and actually pushing engineers. But you, you need people who actually listen and are willing to actually try. Mm. Did you want to say something? Well, I, I just want to... I, I agree that it is idealistic, but uh, maybe we are also talking about uh, two different things because there is the unique kind of projects that serve as example to many, but then there is also... Um, there, there is a total lack of, of any kind of integration or efficiency to, to build for the other 99% somehow. And that is where, where that is also the high impact and where a lot of things can be done significantly better. And there it's not that idealistic because there we are talking about indeed the, the, if you see what uh, in, in Shanghai or places like that, it's cookie cutter kind of uh, the same things go up, right? And so if you can intervene there by a better integration of all these different steps, then, then uh, but yeah, I, I actually also have a very perhaps relevant anecdote to kind of really bring it down. Uh, I was entirely, I couldn't believe it when I had a lecture by Lang, uh, one of the research guys at Langor Work. And um, uh, he claimed that they did the exercise for the headquarters of Google by big uh, BIG and Hedewick in London. Um, if the architecture team would have been willing to change the course, the elevator course, by as little as 10 centimeters, then they could have done over 90% prefabrication rather than the 64% that it ended up being because it was creating all these kind of awkward boundary conditions. And that is just, that, that is really also a reality. And so that, 
this sequentiality also means that you have a positive example, but there's more examples like the one I just uh, shared, I'm afraid. No? And, and I, I, I had to, hate to admit I agree with you on that. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show some of my, you know, not hard to do, my, some of my ignorance, but uh, particularly talking to Philippe and, and Jane and, and Paul, because all three of you are, are engaged in research. You're all three part of academic institutions where research is an important function of the role as an academic. Um, and I'm thinking a little bit possibly more about the block uh, research group. But when I look at it from the outside, I guess I have questions uh, around, is it primarily, and, and again, these words like primarily are probably irrelevant, but is it primarily a kind of material investigation? Is it a structural investigation? Is it an investigation of processes and technologies? Or is it also about a form investigation? Because I think we tend to characterize different research agendas as if it's one or the other with maybe a little bit of the other involved. So, Philippe, maybe you could say a little bit about how you characterize the block research group. Okay. Um, it's kind of funny because I had, um, after uh, too many, uh, this is the last drink with Roland Snooks yesterday, uh, we seem to maybe um, find exactly, or I, I think I found what exactly we always do, is we, yes, we start from the constraints of a material. I talked about material effectiveness, like for example, concrete is um, an artificial sandstone or something like that, or it's kind of like something that wants to be in compression, so that's a constraint that we take into account. Um, a fabrication system, how can we really not kind of, for example, not go the way that many people do? You want a curved wall. Can we do it in 3D printing better? No. The other way around. 3D printing, what might it offer? So what are the constraints of 3D printing that might open up new kind of ideas and so on? And then obviously structure comes in there because some of these opportunities are only possible if you get the structure right. So what we, what we always do is actually, and that relates then to, so you had four, I think. So we actually really focus on the processes because we actually, for each uh, design, try to demonstrate that if you, based on all the previous research that you have done, if you recombine this to really set up a constraint design framework or design context that takes all of these things into account, then we start, and that's your fourth one, then we start designing. And then we can focus 100% on form, on balance, on aesthetics, and so on. So actually, we, we are to the core designers, first and foremost. I really do believe in good design. But if you set up your design tools or your design thinking such that you always are in the range that you are hitting all these things that matter to you, to that, product, uh, to, to that project, then, uh, then it gets exciting, and then you really can innovate, I think. So, um, I don't know. So, Jane, do you agree? Um, I do agree with that, but I also think about some of the formal gymnastics that come out, and um, a lot of that is then um, sort of virtuosity, like then once you've got the system, once you've got the game plan down, and you've got the constraints in those four areas, then how do we, uh, you know, there, there is then that challenge of how formally can we really test 
test the system and put it through its paces. So, and that's a hugely kind of aesthetic um, uh, part of the process. Paul? Um, I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with what Jane and, and um, says as well. Um, I think a lot of time, I mean, I think there's another way to look at it this way. They said, well, how, how, how do we escape that presets notions of what the technique can provide? And I think at the moment, we are increasingly more and more trapped in that digital techniques framework, right? Um, it, it gives you some sort of outcome, and they're almost then repeated 100 times. It, it, it's become obvious when you have 400 students doing the same subject, and you ask them to use laser cut, and everybody produces almost virtually the same thing, right? Um, so I think then the question is, how do you go beyond that and innovate from, from, from that um, as kind of a base. Um, so in, in our studio, we're trying to get the student to develop machine in order for them to escape the aesthetics, you know. And I completely agree with Philip, you know, sometimes you don't have to fight with the materials, you actually work with the techniques and the aesthetics could actually develop that from, from there. And, and, and in a way, that's very much what we were trying to do and trying to put that in practice. Um, well, I got the mic. I'm just going to um, circulate to, to another point earlier. I think one of the critical, this is back to earlier question about digital fabrication, why is it not being practiced as much? Um, to me, I think there's probably two issues. One is we are probably, as a construction, are really slow, which is what um, Philippe Jane and Brenda is all saying. But also, um, the counterpart in manufacturing are far more advanced than we are. And we are like literally 12 years old, still suckling on, on our thumb. And the other thing to me, I think, is also the educational models that we currently have. Um, I don't think we are training our, our architects right for the future industry. I always ask, um, speak to David about this. You know, we've been running um, our studio for the last six, seven years now, and I've seen all our students come out. Some of them are here, so some, you just put your hand on your ear. You don't want to listen to this bit. Um, we always ask ourselves, well, where, where do they go after this? You know, they learn all this great technique. They learn how to make a machine. They learn how to use Arduino. Fantastic. They learn how to make things move. They make really cool stuff. How many of them, apart from working in the fab lab, where else would they do get a job? And I think at the moment, we just have this strange void, certainly in Australia, where the thinking are so much more ambitious, but the doing is actually really, I guess, kind of most infants level. Well, that's good because that that leads into my final question. We didn't cue this question. No, no, we did not. But uh, it does lead into my final question, and then we're going to open it up. Uh, so you know, be prepared. So I wanted to you know because again, certainly, well, effectively, all four of you operate within a context about research, research agendas, and research groups, and research funding, and research direction, and so on and so forth. And Philippe has already mentioned very early on about the question of transfers into industry and such. So I guess one of my interests is always the degree to which when we talk about research, we're talking about research that emanates from the academy and moves into industry, or the degree to which industry sets the agenda and then the academy tries to provide responses but also, and this goes back to exactly what you ended with, Paul, the question of research graduates and, you know, is there future 
in the industry or is there a future just back in the academy as a kind of perpetual cycle of academics becoming researchers who become PhD, who become uh, professors and so on and so forth. So, and, and I think for, uh, I'm interested from, to hear Brendan's take on this as someone who's only recently become part of the, the academy, but where would you see, you know, in your professional life of 30 years, do you see the, the academy as a place that's doing pure research and you can take bits of it that you need? Or do you see that really it's industry that's tackling things and they need help from the academy? Where, 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 does, it, where does it lie for you? I think there's a bit of both on that. And I, I think um, I heard you say, Philippe, that uh, industry is never going to do it. And I agreed at the time. But then I think back to some of my time at Arab and... And good ideas survive and grow on their own, uh, but they've got to be good ideas and they've got to actually, um, you know, in the construction industry, bring people commercial benefit. Um, and, you know, the, the consultants will jump onto a good idea very quickly. Um, the contractors will be much slower just because there's, there's more at stake. And uh, I had a discussion with a, a Singapore contractor once um, about doing the next stage of what would have been the Singapore flyer. And, and this was you know, quite a complex project, but the, you know, they, they were the only people we were talking to and they had the chance of making a huge amount of money, but projects like that have, have got a high level of risk on them. And he said, Brendan, I, I would prefer, it was a time where the market was busy, I would prefer actually to take on 10 jobs where I know that I'm going to make between five and 15% than to take on one job where I could actually lose my shirt on the job. Because they're, they're looking long term and, and when things go wrong for a contractor, they go wrong big time and, and contractors go bust. So it, it's a very difficult um, environment to actually affect change in the way things actually get fabricated. And it's, it's one of the reasons why projects like M Pavilion are so important is because if you get an M Pavilion wrong, you know, it's a million dollars or something and you can build, you know, you're building the next one next year anyway, but you can try things out and you can actually... Um, you know, do things, and you can convince people like Kane Construction to do a lot of this work to actually, you know, take risks on bigger jobs. And, and Philippe, you were, because in our, some of our conversations, your next stage with the research group is, is much more, I wouldn't say integrated, but you, you really think we really have to make an effort to change the way construction industry operates. I mean, it's always a delicate balance, and it's also uh, who offers what to, to whom. And I think so. Um, dis disruptive initiatives, uh, like fully disruptive, are not go necessarily going to come from pra practice. But also, um, academia needs to sufficiently understand what really lives in practice to be relevant. So, like you said, it goes both ways. Um, I'm a bit surprised that you say about contract. I, I fully actually. I, I would be nodding and agreeing on everything you said, and, and you have much more experience than me, obviously, with the dealing with the contracting team and so on. But I'm actually surprised by the keenness and eagerness of the contractors to actually want to support. Uh, for, I can only talk about our industry or my colleagues at ETH. Uh, it's actually mainly contractors that are really behind that. And that, uh, for example, the 
the commercialization of these floors, that is driven by contractors because they see the inefficiencies that we that is now in these systems to go to stack floors up. They they see that that if we go to a prefabricated system, fully capitalize on design for manufacturing automation, that this will offset everything. So they're putting the money behind all of that. And um, they're also, uh, what I find interesting is many contractors uh, get these interesting position between the design team and the client. The client is interested in getting something close enough to the design, but built as fast and as cheap as possible. And so, um, if you if you can tag if you can collaborate with the contractors to indeed intervene there, then I think there is. So I I would argue we want to talk exactly and challenge exactly the contractors and not kind of understand that it's very risky for them. And in in our in our in in our experience, this is exactly what happens. One another one really very anecdotal kind of uh, small evidence is that. Um, this uh, it's shown in 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 the in the project the concrete shell that we have done on a fully flexible formwork. Absolutely everything went wrong in this prototype, like everything. Like pumps broke. Um, um, a totally new uh, crew had to do this very complicated thing. Um, everything went wrong. And um, but after this entire process, that very conservative contractor that. Um, has no digital experience, expertise whatsoever. Two weeks later, called me, the big boss of that company um, that built the only high-rise in Switzerland. So uh, they have some reputation in Switzerland, Marty. They called me to say, oh, we have this great project, complex concrete form. Do you mind if we submit the bit with the system we just worked on together? And I could not believe it. So I am hopeful, actually. That, that contractors are more adventurous than we sometimes maybe give them credit. And so, uh, and I think that's where there is like a key opportunity. And, uh, but I, I, I agree with everything you said, but somehow my experience, they seem to be the ones to talk to. M maybe it's a, another geography thing because you know, I'm aware of Langer Rock's work in, and you know, other contractors in Europe and, and you're right, there's some amazing stuff that goes on. Um, you know, the number of times I've lost the argument on steel versus concrete in Melbourne, you know, it's a huge amount and it's, there's just so many other factors against it and it's, it's all that risk stuff. So it's like, you know, we, we can see on paper that it's going to be faster and cheaper and better, um, but we just can't bring ourselves to believe it because if something goes wrong, we know that there's all of these concrete contractors and capability out in the industry and we know we can pull ourselves out of a problem. Um, yeah, but that's that's yeah. These are big jobs, and it's in in a relatively small market. So maybe it's yeah. so Jane, Jane, yeah. you and Paul. So what's what's your relationship with industry? I mean, how do you see how do you place the the program at Swinburne in terms of its collaboration with industry or its proving up research directions, which may hopefully eventually impact upon industry. So um, it's, an, it's a university of technology, and I would say that's uh, certainly in our discipline areas, but probably more across the university, the vast majority of research is kind of industry-led or industry-partnered. If anything, I'm probably a disruptive influence in encouraging people to also go for discovery grants and try and do uh, a bit more blue sky around some of that industry-partnered uh, research and get that mix in there. 
Um, so yes, but I'm trying to think of a, uh, um, a contractor who's come to us and asked for something, and I'm a little bit challenged. Certainly uh, in terms of kind of component manufacturers in construction, yes, that's happened. Uh, Tara's at the back there, and Grimshaw came and kind of introduced us to Mervac, and we. But then it was very much a different kind of project that we're engaged in with them. So uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do remember going to Norway and uh, people talking about conservative construction industry, and they said we have the too rich problem. You know, we just if you're rich, if you're a rich country, you just cannot take risks. So I'm wondering if maybe Australia has a little bit of the too rich, although you'd think that Switzerland would be more afflicted in that way. Okay, I'm going to... I mean, Paul, do you want to yeah, respond? Yeah, if I could just um, add a little bit. Um, I think just on the contractor side, I mean, I actually quite agree with that. that actually, sometimes contractor, if you find the right one, they're actually much more willing to agree. So the, the, the concrete project that was in, in the leaflets, um, that we spent one and a half years looking for subcontractors that will actually take on that risk. And the funny thing is, after he built that, he turned around and come to us and says, you know that, that circular curved concrete staircase inside that you take out of the package? That supposedly it cost 50000 to just engineer it. And he's like, can we have that back? And we go, nah, it's a little bit too late. But basically, we took them around for one and a half years of journey using, after seeing what we can do with our robot and working on, with him on site, scanning the data and et cetera, and then be able to educate him that way. But I think it's much more a partnership as well. Um, yeah, so I, I think the second thing, just quickly on, on the research side, um, I'm, I'm still a young researcher. I like to think I'm still young, at least something young. Yes, I'm very early career. Thank you, Jane. I'm still very early. Um, so I think my, the research thinking has changed since when I was kind of from the PhD period out. And having done this project where we develop a patent for it, which is super painful, process of two years of not being able to publish anything. But it also teach us a really interesting lesson that we need to start to be much more attuned to what um, the industry needs. Is. So one of the things that we did to start the commercialization process is to actually interview close to about 50 industry partners. And it's kind of a strange interview technique because it's one of the interviews where you say, well, this is not what I'm trying to sell, but actually, what is your problem? And trying to find our way and actually find where the research fit into their problem. So there could be another way. Thank you. Okay, we've got uh, about 15 minutes or so for questions. Uh, is there anybody in the audience here who uh, has a question? And if you could pose it to any particular person? Anyone? No one? No? Yeah, there's one in the back. Hey, uh, thanks to all the panels uh, for your input. Um, my query kind of revolves around academic institutions and I guess this entire topic of translating it into industry and um, sort of why I'm asking is um, Dr. Catherine Dufus chat at RMIT, a lecturer, sorry, not chat, a lecturer at RMIT on Friday where she sort of at the end um, put her position forward where she's much more interested in academia um, rather than actually looking towards sort of necessarily taking that innovation forward and I guess um, sort of block research group success and um, sort of like successfully um, proving concepts and then making industry collaborations. Do does anyone sort of see the responsibility or the owners perhaps, um, or the actual driver coming from a specific unit or a group or research group perhaps within universities, 
having the um, drive to push this agenda forward because if we look at just a, a sort of relying on graduates to take this agenda forward to industry, that's not really gonna, I guess, have a change. So do universities or institutions think that they should have that active engagement with industry rather than relying on these students that you've put and taught to then think away, but then they go out and they're sort of like small fish and they can't then push an agenda. So I guess, where does the flow, I guess, especially in block research groups, success? Philippe, you want to um, I'll, I'll use your question to kind of address something that I think was part of, your, of what you're asking for um, or what you, what you were trying to address is um, uh, initially when you said I'm more interested in academia, I was already starting to boil a little bit, like uh, that that person said that. <laughs> because I think we, we do have a responsibility in our field to, to, to not just make statements like that. But what is very true about that statement is that um, it is extremely hard. It takes a lot of effort, uh, a lot of funding, a lot of kind of um, discipline, and uh, you need to really bite your teeth in these things to go to go to industry. And actually, that time is taking away of indeed the blue sky thinking is taking away from fundamentally trying to address the core kind of questions. And so. Um, um, I would agree that actually that that um, we need to protect also researchers. We need to protect also um, the students for being dragged into all these additional things that come into transfer, and that indeed specialized units can help with that. The challenge, though, is that um, and so it is. We are trying to do that at TTH, but uh, particularly in our Center for Digital Fabrication. And we are noticing that a dedicated team that only focuses on transfer is extreme, extremely more often than not very ineffective because they don't fully understand the research, the innovations, what is needed, and so on. So that's a, that's a frustrating part. Either you double up your team somehow and you make sure that you keep your core researchers, for example, particularly PhD students, need to be protected that they do, they need to be, become independent researchers, they need to kind of own their research and so on. So um, project-driven kind of research could be an opportunity to demonstrate some of their things, but you, they cannot become kind of cheap labor, right? And um, so how we then organize it is we have a more senior team um, a team that is not necessarily still on a track towards um, a doctorate to actually help to transfer these things. So we are indeed uh, increasingly doubling down and having another type of, uh, of, of unit, subunit, that focuses only on transfer. And, but that's, that relates to my very, one of my very first comments in my introduction is that that demands a lot of funding and a lot of kind of commitment and so on. And so it, it's a continuous battle to actually keep this, this, this machine going like that. And you, you mentioned something else. I don't want to take too much time, but you mentioned something else about students about and so on. I agree that that is not used enough. So we try at least um, 
Unfortunately, there is not enough time, plus the curriculum is not tailored that we can have sufficient influence in, in the general architects uh, at ETH, but that at least the researchers uh, in our team, we try all of them to be ambassadors. And that's again, uh, I talked about this open source framework and so on, giving such a kind of base to all of them, that is a good kind of strategy to place seats and to, to also kind of um, engage back and to come back with your questions and not become entirely obsolete and outdated after a couple of years when you have been in practice, for example. So it is very complicated. What you asked is, I, I think, exactly the right question, but I don't know exactly how to do this efficiently. So, yeah. Do you want to say something, Jane? Well, we, I think we've all got accelerators and incubators and um, things like that happening now, which are sort of, I suppose, to sort of weed out the very obviously um, commercially, the things with a really good commercial potential amongst the research that's coming out at, at all levels, whether that's graduating students or research students or researchers. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is that, is that the groups that you were referring to that you thought were a little bit too specialized and outside the research? or? Um. No, well, ETH is kind of investing a lot in, in specific officers, managers that kind of help even even before we, we, we can even talk about a startup or a spin-off and so on and so on. What I find a pity, honestly, about all these startups and spin-offs, you cannot do everything, but the strength often comes. We work really as a large team and the very different characters and specializations of our team are needed for these uh, innovations. And the core of these incubators, these, these accelerator kind of grant or personal fellowships, like we have these pioneer fellowships that give a research that the potential one year time to transfer. But then we need to step away as a research group because then suddenly it needs to really become an, an externalized and conflict of interest and all these kind of things come into play. And so there is also a systematic problem that in order to go to industry, it seems that somehow you need to distantiate as a research group and then you lose that connection. And yeah, so it's, I don't know how to do it. It's, uh, uh, um, yeah, we're, we're in the middle of it. I, I agree. I, I think that conflict is extremely difficult for researchers and academic. And I think the other side of it, if I can flip the coin the other way around, I think we didn't really never ask about what does our um, what does the industry what does the architecture office can, can collaborate with the university? I think too often, certainly in Australia, I know there's some larger office actually have research funding or uh, R&D set aside. I don't think there is enough in our architectural practice, and Melbourne has a lot of architectural practice. A lot of us are doing design research work big and small, and a lot of the time they are so, I guess, um, secluded or, or kept to themselves that, you know, it, it was never shared and a lot, there's a lot of doubling up. Certainly, in, you know, if you talk about social housing, there's probably every office is doing very similar kind of projects, right? And it's the same thing with fabrication knowledge, it's the same thing with technology, and I think there ought to be kind of a feedback relationship between industry and industry not meaning construction industry, but architectural practice and architecture school in order to set up that, um, that kind of cohesive relation. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, my, one of my roles at the University of Melbourne, I'm the Associate Dean Engagement, and part of my role is actually in making those linkages, and certainly we've 
put a lot of effort in terms of the lecture series. I mean, one of the reasons Philippe is here is not just because we want to see what he's done, but he's actually a very interesting example of making very direct links to industry and being very productive in, in those sort of links. But exactly one of the points that Philippe made the, the strongest this evening is about a kind of open source research development. And unfortunately for a lot of professional practices, the last thing they want to do is be open source because it's about having, you know, I can do this because I know something everybody else doesn't know. And I don't want everybody else to know what I know because then I won't be special and I won't get that job because if we're all the same, then what's the differentiator? So the, the you know, it's, it's a very difficult, but I, what I would say, and it's certainly my uh, fundamental position having worked both in the, the universities teaching and then having practice and working and practice and teaching and practice and back and forth is that I think it is absolutely fundamental that students and practices and educators are well networked for the benefit of everybody as opposed to thinking we just operate in a little silo condition. Sorry, Philippe, you were going to say something. I'm not succinct enough with my comments to make a comment again, because Mark had a question. Um, probably one of the older people here. Um, so uh, just to be a bit provocative, um, most of what we've talked about is not a new problem of 2020. It's been there all the time. And in 1996, I was appointed with two chairs, one of building, professor of construction and professor of architecture. And I survived five years in that. It was a brilliant experiment. It was how do you get construct, construction and uh, architecture to come together? We do it through a top-down approach, starting with a single professor. I moved on to RMIT to become morphed into professor of innovation, and my position was split into a professor of construction, and, a cons and so we went back to the same way it is. So my question is around the only thing that's changed that I can see that's relevant is the digitalization within society and of practice. And I'm wondering what your comment, what your comments would be, because this is an area of interest for me, is what if you turn it around and go bottom up and say everything's screwed because there's vested interests, there's um, unions for construction, there's the um, guild instincts that you're talking about, Don. What if we um, actually said it'll all evolve if we can just get students emerging from all their various specialities and they just do their thing? Because I think, presumably, if you had a bottom-up approach to affordable housing with people who have an actual interest in acquiring an affordable house, everybody, I mean, an architecture student should be able to find an engineering student who's got the same kind of mentality. And I just wonder if once that happens, whether that's where we'll get real change when the big vested interests can see that actually there's a rival. And it, the Google thing is a problem because um, we saw this morning a, a, a hoarding for a new building that's going up with arches, two arches. And the arches don't have any voussoirs. It's just literally a brick wall that's got an arch cut through it. And that's what ignorance, you know, uh, an aesthetic ignorance will produce. So we don't want that to happen. But I just wonder whether you've got a thoughts whether there could be an opportunity for a bottom-up, and what would the university therefore need to do to get that entrepreneurial um, push? I hope that wasn't too long. Uh, I, I think we should be teaching student, architecture students how to run business. I completely agree. I mean, 
I am very shocked that now 2020 architecture student can go through year one, year two, year three, and never even know how to write a letter to get employer jobs, or even do how to, how to do accounting. So I completely agree. I mean, I, I think the bottom-up process will work, but I think the certain, the, my, my concern will be that at a certain point, they will be subsumed into the normality of things once money get put in front of them, which everybody will. Um, you know, there's a certain kind of values of their work is being consumed by a client and they're part of the institute. They will already be kind of back to kind of same issue, right? Um, I think one thing that they, um, our practice hopefully is trying to do is that we struggle with this project, this house prototype, which takes forever. Um, we're struggling, what's I'm thinking now is that whether we should actually start to form a mini kind of consulting with subcontractors and people that essentially we are becoming a, a mini builders, but we started to liaise with multiple subcontractors who would like to work with, who are thinking the same way that we are, and actually build that team and actually ditch really the big builders who really want 20% cut off a project and be able to use that as a way to drive, to, to, to have a different type of practice. I, I, I would actually, um, uh, I would argue that some of the things that we have been talking about is not entirely, so you said you've been talking about this, but maybe an, an alternative view. Um, I want to try to argue that we were maybe talking about the same thing, but it depends how you look at it. So um, I, I believe we, we can learn from the past. In the past, you had master builders. There was not a, connect, uh, a dis disconnect between these different kind of disciplines. So today, it's not sufficient to now suddenly have a digital master builder because that is just not realistic with the requirement and the expectations and the complexities of today's kind of um, uh, uh, requirements compared to that. So now I will make the connection. Um, so indeed, the digital is the key. So I believe that um, the translation from the master builder logic and kind of purity um, to a modern update is actually to form a team and it's the digital that actually is the language, the glue, that can bring these people together. And so um, that is why I kept, uh, maybe not explicitly enough, so actually thanks for clarifying, uh, to, to, to ask your question, because what I am talking about is also a value of this open sourceness and sharing and so on, is also to find that connection, because that is really an issue that, um, okay, we are not even sufficiently teaching the digital, we are not sufficiently giving these kind of platforms and language to the students. It's even worse than that. Uh, at, at ETH, and I'm sure in many places in the world, architects and engineers never even talk to each other, so not even through computation in their entire education, and from day one in practice they need to collaborate, right? And so I would agree exactly with what you say, that it needs to come bottom up, but that only works if you have a common ground somehow. And, and to be able to merge, balance, compromise, even understand or bring together all these different expertise, you need a common language. I also believe in the common language being geometry. You can actually teach a lot of principles, uh, both in engineering, both in architecture, both in certainly in fabrication and construction. So that is another kind of glue language, geometry, 
But then I think with the complexities that we deal in modern day practice, I think computation is that essential kind of connection. Do you think, uh, Philippe, that that common language might be business and money? Because <laughs> there's, I mean, th there's groups around university, and I know back at Arab, our young engineers used to catch up with architects and project managers and, you know, construction industry groups. Um, yeah, and, and maybe we need to be encouraging little, little, you know, teams of four or five people who join together and understand each other over a beer, encouraging them to actually start up little businesses either in the, you know, their umbrella businesses like Arup or Grimshaw or whoever, or go out on their own. I'm not quite sure I how you do that. as educators we're actually incentivised to do that, because it is counted. It's one of the things that's counted when people come out of education, in this country anyway, is how many of them are going into their own businesses. So, um, yeah, it's a good, good, good challenge to think about how you, how you seed that. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna have to end it there. But I, you know, if you take nothing away from this whole evening, take away this new, uh, what's the word is I'm trying to use, uh, this new phrase, glue language, uh, and this glue language that comes from the digital as the way to sort of merge some of these uh, tendencies and capacities uh, that we have. So first of all, I want to um, thank the M Pavilion for hosting this. This may or may not be the last big public event here. Uh, you're here all week, but there may be nobody else here. But anyway, we're here. And I also want to thank all of the audience that's here, those who will listen to this in the future, but particularly those people who are wrapped up in rugs and uh, suffering through the, the setting of the sun, as it were, but who are here uh, to be part of this. And then obviously to thank the four panelists that we have, uh, Paul Lowe, Jane Burry, uh, Philippe Block, and Brendan McNiven. Um, thank you all for being here this evening. And uh, if you've got nothing else to do tomorrow evening at 7.30, please come to the University of Melbourne, Melbourne School of Design, and for Philippe to show the projects in much more detail and much more uh, specificity uh, than we've spoken about tonight. Thank you all very much. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.